think the views expressed in this interview are those of the individuals and do not reflect the official policy or position of the U.S. government, the Department of Defense, the U.S. Navy, or the Naval Postgraduate School. Welcome to the Trident Room, brewer of stout conversation, unfiltered and on tap. On today's episode, Trident Room hosts Luke Gorski and Marcus Antonellis sit down and have a conversation. Bringing up that point of operating in our enemy's backyard is really a good one because I think as we uh, think about what we envision as, you know, peer uh, competitor war in, you know, the next 20 years or so, um, I think that, you know, there's definitely schools of thought about who that's going to be, where it's going to happen. But I don't think any of those schools of thought include us operating off the shores of San Diego or Florida. I think that that it's all about power projection away from the United States. So being able to conduct operations far away from your home bases, far away from your logistics nodes, or the logistics nodes that you are near are at significant risk of enemy capabilities. Uh, So just another piece to keep in mind, I mean, I think the always the, uh, the biggest thing starting on my career on the, the Atlantic side and then coming over to the Pacific side afterwards, the, one of the most eye-opening things for me was just the size of the Pacific. I mean, how long it takes to transit from uh, San Diego to Hawaii and then Hawaii to the Western Pacific. It's, it's a long time. It takes, takes a while. So that means that if we want to fight a war effectively, um, in this scenario, would be the South China Sea. But even if you want to go and put us in the in the Baltic Sea or in the uh, Arabian Sea, I think that there's still long uh, timelines associated with getting the right forces into the right spot at the right time. And do we have two weeks, four weeks, six weeks to bring all these ships over there? Or do we need to have them in place beforehand, in which case we need – this kind of goes back to my we need a quantity of ships – because you're going to need to be able to have ships, you know, stationed, you know, with a relatively, you know, a, a forward presence that has a significant offensive capability, um, optimally to deter. But the other side of deterrence is you have to be able to effectuate your what you're projecting with your your forward deployed capabilities. Yeah, no, for sure. And I mean, I, I think we've we've sort of tried to do that. Um, I mean, there's the the the, the the optimal ship life cycle where it goes right. through the maintenance phase, the basic phase, and all the other phases. And ideally, that keeps X number of ships always downrange. Um, but yeah, I mean, the question you're basically at is, is that X number, is that sufficient? Right. And I think what we're finding is no. Mm-hmm. Um, or at least those ships that are there are not exquisite enough to have a large enough delta between them and our peer competitors to be effectual in that region. Right, yeah, I think that that's a, that's a really good point, is we can have lots of ships and always have a forward presence, but as we see when you're, you know, running out crews, you know, for deployments, looking at, you know, talking to some of the guys on, on carriers now, you know, you underway, like, what was the, the TRs? last trip it, it, out it was very 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 long right and i know all the shit all the ships that were um, in that strike group and 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 uh all the covid deployments that, right. that got extended and they didn't get to pull in 
and just those all the ships that were out during COVID just really really got stretched thin, mm-hmm. um, and and that's another and that's another consideration. Um, do we have enough people in the Navy to man all these ships we want? Mm-hmm. It, and, and are if, we manning effectively? Are we? Exactly. Do we have enough people? Or are they in the right places? That's um, that's another good question. Because if we if if there's only a certain amount of the population that will join the Navy. So once you have that certain amount, that's all you get. Mm-hmm. So we need to figure out, okay, we have this many hundred thousand people in the Navy. This is how we have to employ every single person down to the individual in order to effectively maximize the return on the investment that the population has given us. Mm-hmm. And I think that will sort of dictate how we're going to outfit those sailors with equipment. What kind of ship are we going to put them on? If we're only getting a certain amount and that amount isn't going up a whole lot, we're probably going to go towards the option of having a few exquisite systems instead of everywhere distributed, less capable, but highly networked, highly flexible um, fleet. Right. Because if the service force um, is relatively small or small uh, compared to past numbers and it is not increasing, then we need to be much more careful with what we expend um, manpower or what we expend sailors on. Right. Because it's a highly finite resource. Mm -hmm. And I think that, you know, in addition to the, the sailors and, you know, we want to make sure that sailors stay in the Navy so you don't want to burn them out running presence missions wherever and wherever across the globe because presence serves a, a noble strategic goal. But when you're talking to, you know, Seaman Timmy on his first deployment and he hasn't talked to his family in however long because we're running MCON, how likely is he to continue to stay in the Navy? Right. How do you make sure you maintain that human capital when you're out running some of these longer missions or if you're deciding that in order to provide effective deterrence, we need a continuous forward presence? Um, in addition to that, it's also the idea, um, kind of like some of the arguments we've seen uh, using F-18s, F-35s, F-22s to go fly over Iraq or Afghanistan to bomb you know, guys in Hilux trucks. Is that the best weapon system for that job or are we just burning... Uh, engine hours on platforms that are designed to go up against, you know, fourth and fifth generation fighter craft. So yeah. it's yeah, it's spending millions of dollars to go blow up a ten thousand dollar truck. Yeah, no, I, that's that's a, that's a really good point. Yeah. So if we, you know, you, the, again, it's a balance between the exquisite systems, which you need to fight, to fight the high end fight, and the numerous cheap, minimally manned systems that you need to ensure you have a presence. Um, and I think really what our goal here is going to be is to find where that balance lies. Does that seem right? No, yeah, 100%. I mean, that's 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 the identity crisis we have in, um, I guess, just in warfare in general. Like, what it, what is the next thing going to look like? Um, very few people throughout history are, have been good at that. I mean, the ones who were good at it, they didn't, life expectancy wasn't very long back in the day. So, <laughs> Um, they didn't really get to see some of their thoughts come to fruition. 
but it, it's it's very hard. It's very difficult, especially with the rapid changing the the rapid pace of technological development um, and the rate at which the rate of development which we see coming out of certain parts of the world is it, it, it's tough. It's really tough because um, it's unfortunately it's not a quick process to build a new ship or to come up with a new class of ship. It is a five, 10, 15 year long program. And it's not, you're not always successful. I mean, the LCS has been the example of this podcast. So let's go back to that one. I mean, the freedom, the LCS one was commissioned in 2008 and it's 2021 now, and they're already decommissioning a bunch of them. They were supposed to last us like 35 years or so. Don't quote me on that. I think that's about right. Uh, uh, yeah. Maybe 25 to 30, I think, was the... Right. So half. It, but it didn't, no more it, than didn't, half. it didn't get anywhere near there. Yeah. Meanwhile, we're extending the life of all the cruisers and DDGs to 45 years. It's, 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 a tough, it's a tough spot because we see our adversaries developing hand over fist. And we're like, well, we still have, we still have this platform. And it worked in the late 90s. It was great during Desert Storm, and it was great during the beginning of um, the War on Terror. Uh, but that's not that's not the name of the game anymore. Mm-hmm. Um, but we're still playing with the same toys we had back then. Yeah, and I think I mean we're kind of maybe getting a, a little off topic here, and I kind of like to talk about naval history, so I'm going to go and talk for a minute. But I think one of the really interesting things looking forward is we haven't had the type of war that we were discussing in this really ever, right? We've never had modern, over-the-horizon ships engaging each other. And you can make the argument for the Falcons War, and I'll, I'll take that. In the Falcons War, they're, you know, using cruise missiles to target ships, right? Uh, but then when you look back at it, the Falcons War right now is closer to World War II than we are to the Falcons War. So think of how much of a difference in Delta there was between those two wars compared to what we're looking at now. And I think that's what we're trying to address as we go and look at the information age. I think that we're seeing, you know, whereas, again, if we're using the Falcons War as an example of uh, over-the-horizon missile use in naval war um, as kind of the first real-world example of that, I think that this next naval fight, whatever it is, I think that's going to be fought in the information domain largely. The information domain can't do it all by itself. You can shut down, you can jam okay, we can do a cyber attack on an enemy ship and now they can't drive their ship. But they still have missiles. They have people on board that are able to repair those ships. So in the end, it comes down to being able to neutralize the ship, put it put it at the bottom of the ocean, right? right. As long as there's a missile on that ship that can fire, it's a threat. Right. Um, so there needs to be a combination of, it can't just all be, oh, electrons flying through the atmosphere are going to win this next war it'll help it's an enabler but it's not the end-all be-all oh yeah no 100 percent. and i think the while we're trying to figure out what the ship of the future looks like the the sailor of the future and the naval officer of the future is someone who can successfully command both domains both the kinetic or the tangible the missiles the bullets the the explodey bits the metal mm-hmm. who can successfully fusion that with the not explodey stuff, the electrons, the the ones and zeros flying through space, the electromagnetic spectrum, directed energy, lasers, electromagnetic waves, UHF, SHF, all the whole, all that, the 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 individual who can successfully 
reconcile those two aspects of naval warfare is going to be the most valuable weapon moving forward. Right. Because they're the ones ultimately going to go over the horizon on the ship or whatever. Um, maybe it's not even a ship. Maybe it's some. Maybe who, who knows. But that's part of, I think, what we need to consider in our calculus for what does the ship look like. Mm-hmm. Okay, well, who's going to use it? Mm-hmm. So we will assume that it is this amazing, super smart, technically savvy individual who has mastery over both the physical and non-physical domain. So Yeah, no, I think that's exactly right. And I think that we kind of veered all around, um, but hit some primary points in our survivability idea. Yeah. And just to kind of quickly sum those up, I would say that number one, we wanted to have um, some type of assured C2, assured communications capability. It has to be able to talk and receive information in an electromagnetically contested environment. Right. Uh, the second piece um, in terms of survivability is that it has to have a ably trained crew that is able to use its weapons effectively and the right sized crew to enable the type of fleet that we need. And then the third point being also having the correct number of platforms where we talk about is it better to have a few exquisite platforms or is it better to have a number of platforms that we can leverage out and shoot everywhere? Yeah, no, I definitely think that's that's um, that's what we need to consider going forward. Um, yeah, all those all those points we hit on. I mean, yeah, we sort of we danced around some of the points a lot, um, but ultimately those three things right there, I believe, are good starting points for having a successful platform for the future. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so we kind of got away from the original or what maybe the dictionary definition of survivable and. I threw some of my fancy national security affairs essay words into the conversation, and we, yeah. you know, what does survivability really yeah, mean? Well, it's, but it's it's never fun to just proceed down the 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 boring straight and narrow path. It's always fun to you know stop and see what's on the side of the road every once in a while because that's where you that's where you find the good stuff, the side of the road. I don't know. I think it would have been fun to itself. talk about. Hey, let's just up armor an entire uh, cruiser with. Uh, well, I mean, you, yeah. I mean, you look at but, you you look at what. Um, I mean, the late Soviet Union was doing, that's what they were, they were just, they were making nuclear-powered ships with all just bristling with, like, honestly, quite terrifying uh, vessels, just bristling with missiles and just crazy, crazy propulsion plants. So they were, they were, they were headed down a certain path. I don't, I don't know if it would cut, I don't know if it would pass the sniff test today and actually be useful. But on paper, it was pretty like, oh my goodness. Well, that bringing up the the nuclear powered cruiser is actually maybe in a in a sequel series of podcasts we can do a. Uh, oh, and yeah, I've had I've had thoughts on that as well, so we can definitely talk. Yeah, about that can that be too, the uh, maybe not so much the twenty thirties, twenty forties. That can be the twenty fifties, twenty sixties, when we're we'd old men to, in the retirement home. Yeah, all I have to say about that is we'd have to train a whole lot of nukes. Yeah, if we wanted to do that. Thanks again, Luke. Uh, I, this this is the second podcast we've done together now, and I really enjoy these because we just sort of get to have a very uh, natural flow of conversation. I really appreciate that. So sort of going forward though, so today we sort of talked about the requirements themselves, what something needs to do, what something should do. So I think for next time, uh, and correct me if I'm wrong here, we're going to talk about, okay, how is it going to do that? What is a ship going to have? What is going to be under the hood? 
that will actually allow it to meet those requirements that we talked about. Thanks for joining us in the Trident Room. For more information about today's guests and topics, please visit the show notes. The Trident Room has been brought to you by the Naval Postgraduate School Alumni Association and Foundation. For questions, comments, and suggestions, please email us at tridentroompodcasthost at nps.edu and find us online at nps.edu slash tridentroompodcast.